Hey, we just wanted to take a minute to thank you for listening to our podcast. We're really happy that you're enjoying the podcast and we love hearing from you. Yes, I've loved making this podcast with you, Lee. When we started doing this, I had no idea how to use a mixer or how to edit. <laughs> and now that we've been doing this for over a year, I still don't know how to use a mixer or how to edit. I might even know less than when we started. Well, at least you can say you certainly know a lot more about Northern Exposure. And we hope the listeners out there have gained something too. Anyway, if you like to listen to us ramble on about the minute details and the big ideas, you know, the, the color of Joel's shirt or obscure trivia like Anwar, then you should consider subscribing to our brand new Patreon page. Yes, once a month, we'll be posting an exclusive bonus episode about movies and television shows and themes related to Northern Exposure on the Patreon. We've already got this month's bonus episode available on our Patreon page. We cover the directorial debut of Rob Morrow, you know, Dr. Fleischman. It's the film Maze from the year 2000. And since this is the very first time we've started a Patreon, we wanted to throw in a little incentive to get the ball rolling. When you become a patron, we're going to mail you a custom-made postcard designed by Laser Kitties, who designed our podcast artwork. And these postcards look incredible. They have this nostalgic feeling you got when you visited those mom-and-pop gas station stores your parents stopped at on the family vacation road trip. You go inside and grab a bag of combos, pizza flavor of course, and vanilla Coke. And look at the rack with postcards that read greetings from Little Rock in those big block letterings. But these postcards will be about Sicily, Alaska and all things Northern Exposure. Yeah, we're going to write you a message or doodle something on the back, something unique for every postcard. We've even got a bonus tier for the first 50 patrons. You can get the Maze bonus episode and a postcard from us for just $1. Just $1? Just $1. We love making the podcast, but it takes up a long part of our weeks to record, research, and then edit it all down. But that's not going to stop us. We are dedicated to Northern Exposure and to the fans of the show. If you want to help us out and support the podcast, we'll take all the help we can get. We just want to make sure you get a little something extra for being there along the way. Please check out our Patreon page. That's patreon.com slash Northern Overexposure Podcast and become a patron today. There's the L-tryptophan. L-what? L-tryptophan. It's an amino acid found in, among other things, turkey. It works as a sedative of sorts. Makes you feel good. Oh, so what? Now we're drugged into enjoying Thanksgiving? No, not at all, Colin. I'm only pointing out the irony. I mean, who needs chemical assistance to, to make you feel good on Thanksgiving? Turkey, pastrami, peanut butter, it doesn't matter what's on the table. It's the celebration that's so great. I'm amazed, Fleischman. You actually have a capacity for pleasure. Yeah, Thanksgiving, O'Connell? No, I love it. It's the only holiday that's for everyone. I mean, there's no theological strings attached. Christians, Jews, Muslims, Moonies. I mean, no one's left out in the cold. Yeah. What? That is Arbor Day erasure. <laughs> uh, what, what do you mean? What, why is it Arbor Day erasure? Because Arbor Day is also a holiday where everyone of every creed, ethnicity, religion can come together and yeah. plant trees. Yeah. I, you know, actually relating to this idea, you know, it doesn't discriminate race, creed, color, all, all that stuff. Uh, this is going to sound kind of crazy, Charles, but I watch a lot of uh, cooking uh, YouTube channels and I've been stuck on... Jacques Pepin, he's like a he's this old French chef, 
the reason I bring him up is because I have a bite from his like Thanksgiving when he's preparing Thanksgiving turkey, and he kind of kind of relates uh, similarly to what Joel's saying. Uh, maybe this is just a little cherry on top to to what Joel's saying here, but let me let me play that for a sec. I always cook turkey for Thanksgiving. For me, it is the best tradition. Actually, Thanksgiving is the best holiday of all for me. It is not a holiday because of some date of a battle fighting somewhere or some type of religious holiday. No, it is a holiday to get together, to eat, to drink, to be merry, to be with your friends. So this is the greatest holiday. Yeah, so like he says, it's not about a religious celebration. It's not about a war or a battle. Um, but I guess you could say the same for Arbor Day and for, for plenty of other holidays, though I think the distinction here that Jacques Pepin makes is uh, it's about basically, at least for him, about eating and being with your friends, which is, you know, that, that's always great. Well, it is for certain people, but in today's episode, we see that, you know, there is a faction of people that are against Thanksgiving. I love that, I really love that this episode celebrates that idea of Thanksgiving and how, like, you know, Joel is just talking about how wonderful it is. And Maggie is like, wow, you're strangely happy. But I also love that the episode is smart enough, clever enough to realize there is there is someone who is being left out here. And, and it's, you know, it's the Native Americans, you know, who in Sicily have their own way of celebrating Thanksgiving. So I guess, Charles, we can say what we're talking about is... Northern Exposure, it's the 1990s TV series that ran on CBS, and this is the Thanksgiving episode, so happy belated Thanksgiving to you, Charles. This is going to come out, like, I think right around Christmas, before Christmas time. Yeah, we'll be on the next major holiday, but yeah, happy belated Thanksgiving to you, too. I want to say that, first off, how is this the first Thanksgiving episode? Like, why is Joel so surprised right. on this Thanksgiving tradition? He's been here, right? It's true. Yeah, this would not have been Joel's first Thanksgiving. And in fact, if you can remember back to the Halloween episode in season three, uh, the day after Halloween, Maggie invites Joel over to like taste, like she's going to do a, a trial run of Thanksgiving dinner. Like she always does it every year. She'll like uh, the, on November 1st, she cooks all of her Thanksgiving things that she wants to try out, her recipes, and then decides like what she's going to actually do for, for Thanksgiving. So they do mention Thanksgiving in that episode, though, you know, it's, it's a precursor. But so this would not have been Joel's first Thanksgiving in Sicily. Um, but I'm, you know, I'm still glad we have this episode. It came a little late perhaps, but it, it kind of doesn't track that Joel would be so surprised about the, uh, well, the tomatoes, I guess. Maybe we should talk about that. You mean the uh, the tomatoes? The tomatoes? Yeah. So there's tomatoes, there's tomatoes, and then there is like the the unholy third choice, the tomatoes. What is that? That's like the third way to pronounce it. <laughs> you're like putting an oo sound for the o, and a, and you're really accentuating the e. <laughs> yeah. So like you, you you lose on both fronts. <laughs> I've never heard that third. That's crazy. <laughs> <laughs> that's bad. Yeah, that's totally. Yeah, no one would agree with that. It's either tomato or tomato, right? Yeah. Uh, you know what's crazy about the tomatoes mm -hmm. is that there's always a famous fight between whether it's a fruit or a vegetable. But actually, it was decided in a very narrow scope 
by the United States Supreme Court on whether it was a what? fruit or a vegetable. <laughs> they got yeah, legal so, on this. Okay, yeah, what's up? Yeah, well, only in the scope of this one specific area. Mm-hmm. So in 1883, a tariff was signed into place, and the tariff was going to tax outside products that were coming in. Mm-hmm. But the law exempted fruits, but not vegetables. So it made a lot of tomato importers claim that the tomato was a fruit. They're like, well, I don't want to be hit by the tariff. The tomato is a fruit. So the Supreme Court actually heard the case in Nix versus Hedden in 1893, and they ruled that tomatoes were vegetables because they were served at dinner and not dessert. However, they specifically only did this for the tariff. They didn't do it for any botanical reclassification. It has no bearing on that. You cannot use it in that kind of defense. Huh. But... For that particular tax issue, they ruled it as a vegetable. That's fascinating because you always try to, you know, it's like scientifically, botanically, you know, this is a fruit. But when you think about it in commerce, you've got to classify that as a vegetable. That's insane. That actually happens a lot in uh, lots of weird little cases. So they'll look into a product and they'll be like, um... What's the classification of this? Because this is going to affect how it's going to be taxed when it comes into the U.S. So one famous example is the Snuggie. Uh (laughs) Yeah, that one was really difficult for them to classify. Um, Some action figures are really hard to classify because Mm. they can't tell if it's like a toy or like a collection or like a, you know, something else entirely. So I think those are really fascinating. But yeah, tomatoes being thrown at Joel. That's right. And I guess we should say... Again, this is the Thanksgiving episode. It's called Thanksgiving. It's the eighth episode in the fourth season. Uh, it was released November 23rd, 1992. I guess I should say that's when it was broadcast. So that's like the, I guess it's the Monday, I think, uh, before Thanksgiving that year. Thanksgiving was on the 26th that year. Directed by Michael Fresco and written by David Asael, who has written some of my favorite, I think some of our favorite episodes, Charles, uh, like The Russian Flu Spring Break, Our Tribe, It Happened in Juno, and now Thanksgiving. So yeah, that sound bite that we opened with at the beginning of our episode is practically the beginning of this episode of Northern Exposure. It's Joel and Maggie sort of walking through a meadow that kind of uh, turns onto, you know, like the street of Sicily. Great, you know, it's a continuous shot. Lots of, you know, you got your dog watch 2020, some dogs <laughs> running through the frame. You got like a biker. And, uh, you know, they haven't really talked about it yet, but it's clear you can see lots of like Day of the Dead style decorations going on in the background. Yeah, I love those decorations. They really did a great job on it. And in fact, I think further in the episode, there's like a 30 second shot of them going through the city and seeing the townsfolk interacting with all the decorations. Yeah, there's like that, exactly, like a little decoration montage. You get It's very much, obviously, Day of the Dead, like sort of like the Mexican uh, skeleton design. And there's a cool, really cool shot of Halling painting the window. You know, like it's like we're looking through the window and he's drawing. I just love that shot. He's like painting a, a skull. And I guess he's smiling. It just looks really cool. <laughs> there's even... Um... In one of the shots, there is a skeleton throwing a tomato at another skeleton. So they're incorporating oh, the tomatoes into them. I did not catch that. That's that's awesome. So, yeah, I guess maybe let's just keep rolling here with our – we're going to go through the, the Joel plot line. I think that's the majority of the episode. There, there, there are a couple other uh, segments. But we start with Joel. And uh, so – oh, I should – I do want to also bring up – I really like the uh, the quote when he's talking about the – Thanksgiving turkey, like the uh, drawing, like the hand. 
turkey. Do you know what I'm talking about? Mm-hmm. You know, one of the things that always intrigued me as a kid was the, you probably did this too, the, the tracing your hand and making a, a turkey. Yeah. Yeah, and, and the brown crayon always wore out first. Yeah. <laughs> that had great significance for me as a kid. I mean, there I was. I was this kid with little or no artistic ability, not able to draw a stick, let alone a stick figure, and here was this Thanksgiving turkey, and I made it. I don't know, Flashman. You cheerful like this is kind of creepy. I like that detail of when Maggie says, like, you know, yeah, the and the brown crayon would always run out first. I don't know. It makes it seem realistic. Yeah, no, that's a small little detail that I, I think there's plenty of them in this episode, actually, where uh, the throwaway lines, but it adds a lot of detail to the yeah. to to, uh, to the world, I guess, or like just to the characters. Definitely, or maybe, yeah. Well, that leads us to Joel walking down the path, and he meets with Ed, and they cheerfully say hey to each other. Um, very, very nice. And then Ed just takes out a tomato and just absolutely whacks Joel. <laughs> yeah. I love how, like, cocky and happy Joel is about Thanksgiving to see Ed, and he's, you know, he says, like, couldn't be better, couldn't be better, and then wham, like, smacked with that tomato, <laughs> and... Uh, I don't know. It's just like a, the, the, the wave that Ed gives to Joel and he just cheerfully walks away. And that's like our cut to opening title music there. Yeah. I mean, to Ed, that's just all natural. That's, <laughs> I mean, that's what he grew up on. So if we follow that scene with it, we see that Joel is in his office and he's complaining to Marilyn about this because he's, you know, he, to him, he feels like, Ironically, he felt like it was like a hate crime. He was just <laughs> yeah. like, this is, how could you do this to me? Because Marilyn has to explain to him that it is a tradition in Sicily for them to throw tomatoes at white people. Yeah, I think it's amazing that, you know, the show recognizes this, I don't know, pent up aggression, this retaliation of celebrating this holiday Thanksgiving and, and what it means uh, to, to Native Americans and then how they how they've kind of like reinvented it for themselves because they've got their own sort of day of the dead, uh, which we'll get into, which is sort of interwoven into their celebration of Thanksgiving. But I I just love it. I love that this show at both times is celebrating Thanksgiving, but is also knocking it down a peg, you know, literally by throwing these like tomatoes at the people who, you know, traditionally celebrate in this way. But uh, what does Marilyn say, or, or Joel says, why tomatoes? <laughs> Marilyn's excuse is, uh, they look like blood, but they don't hurt. <laughs> so I actually tried looking into this as to why you throw tomatoes in the first place. And I found it from this uh, book. It was about the history of tomatoes. And from what it was saying, it said that when tomatoes were first being introduced to Italy, they weren't actually eaten. They were commonly used as ornaments. But tomatoes quickly spread throughout the region, and by 1800s, the fruit actually became associated with peasants. So it was like a low-class thing. So they still weren't eating it. And in Italy, it was really common to throw things at bad performers. (laughs) So the tomato was really handy because it was really cheap, and it was associated with low status. So if you threw it at something, you know, you throw trash at trash. Yeah, exactly. They just decided to do that. And that is apparently where the tradition came from. I've also heard that, I want to say it was like in like Shakespeare's time, maybe even it would predate this as well, but uh, tomatoes were thought to be poisonous. Like people didn't eat them, maybe because it was acidic or something else. 
but you know, literally throwing poison at at people on stage that they don't that they don't want to see anymore on stage. <laughs> well, in a way, Joel is thinking that this is undeserved because he's claiming that he is a person of color. He is not actually white. He is Jewish. Yeah, very important conversation here. Uh, I, I pulled a bite for it, Joel exclaims he's like you know this this would all you know this is all fine and good but you don't get it marilyn i'm not white i don't deserve this tomato well well, here let let me play what he says let me tell you something marilyn not only do i find this custom atavistic and reprehensible but ed made a very serious mistake he got the wrong guy an innocent bystander i'm not white yes you are i may look white but i am not i am jewish okay jewish a fellow person of color a victim of oppression let me ask you something. Do you uh, know what a shtetl is? Reservation? Right. How'd you know that? You told me. Okay, well, for your information, in Eastern Europe, in the Pale of Settlement, Jews were herded into these squalid villages. Shtetls? Yes, exactly. We were ostracized, segregated, and the Cossacks would ride through regularly, raping, pillaging, and murdering. So, you see, Marilyn, I may be a lot of things, but I'm not white. Definitely not white. It's a very important distinction that Joel brings up, and but I mean, in this scene, he's cl- he's clearly white in this scene. But I I think as the episode gro- goes on, we sort of watch. For instance, at the end of this scene, Marilyn, whenever Joel leaves, Marilyn sort of picks up t- a tomato that she has on the desk, and it's like, uh, for me, I was thinking like, is this the tomato she's saving for Joel? You know, she's kind of like pondering the tomato as he escapes. But um, uh, I think throughout the episode. You know, Marilyn maybe comes around to the idea that Joel, he's white, but he's not white at the same time, you know, and maybe that's something we have to also learn throughout the course of the episode. But what's your take on this, Charles? Well, I think it's a little bit of a complicated subject because uh, being quote unquote white is sort of like a construct where you can only identify yourself as white based on what other people are saying what you are. But I think in particularly of being Jewish, it's almost paradoxical because on one hand, some people are not going to consider you white. So if I went to the extreme edge, you could say like white supremacists would not consider Jewish people white. But if you went on a little bit of the different spectrum, whenever you're filling out a census form, there, there's no category that just says Jewish on there. Like you would have to fill out and say non-Hispanic white right there. But, you know, by all accounts, and you, you, I don't think you're able to argue this, is that it is a persecuted minority it is something that most people want to put on the quote-unquote outside. So at the end, I would say that it's incredibly complicated and, <laughs> you know, really it's not my place to say whether it is or is not since I am not Jewish by either religion or ethnicity. Well, what jo- I think what you're saying is what Joel is also trying to argue, the idea that, you know, he says, I'm a victim of oppression. Like, my people were oppressed the same way. And... Regardless, you know, the color of his skin might make him white, you know, but as the episode goes on, and if you just recall in season three, you know, in the episode Our Tribe, he's, you know, he's been adopted by the tribe. So he's a member of the tribe, whether or not that makes him an Indian. But you'll see that eventually at the, towards the end of the episode, Marilyn does invite Joel to march in the parade with her. And Joel even says something to the effect of like, well, you know, isn't that for Indians only? And I think at that point she says, well, you're not white anymore. And I don't know if that is to mean like 
you know, you've, 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 you've ascended Joel, or if she's just trying to say, well, you know, you've given, you don't want to be white apparently. And you're, ho- I think a big part of that scene as well is like, he's hopeless. It's like, so I'll take you in now is what Marilyn is saying to Joel. Yeah. That's the way I read that scene was that she was just kind of throwing him a bone. Cause he was just in a <laughs> despondent mood right there. Yeah. Let, let's, let, let's uh let's keep going through the plot and we can discover why Joel is uh is so hopeless. Yeah, yeah. So Joel's mood takes a turn for the worse when he receives uh, a letter. He's going to Ruthann's store. You know, I guess that's also the the post office in a way. Um, but before he receives the letter, he bumps into Dave. You know, the line cook at the Brick, who is Native American, and I really love this conversation that. He has with Dave. Hey, Dave. Let me ask you something. Hey, you're an Indian. That's right, Dr. Fleischman. I-, I can understand that you would harbor a certain amount of hostility toward white people, but do you really think that, that hurling tomatoes is uh, an acceptable way to express that hostility? It could be worse. Worse. Baseball bats, bicycle chains, tire irons. Yeah. I really like that. It, it's humorous because, you know, the, he's definitely, Dave is stepping it up a notch with tire irons and, and baseball bats. But um, at the same time, it's like Dave is not stepping down. He's like, no, I, I don't think that's, I don't think that's bad tomatoes. You know, it, it could be much worse. Like it, it is almost like a deserving punishment, you know? Yeah. That's like their own form of a mini protest against yeah. uh, the oppression that they had. Uh, one of them, I had forgotten about this. But it came back to my memory after watching this episode is that in 1969, there was actually a protest from American Indians uh, against their treatment. And they went to Alcatraz, Alcatraz Island. They just occupied it for 19 months while just arguing over there. Yeah, it was actually the subject in a book I had read recently, uh, They're There by Tommy Orange. Hmm. Um, And it dealt with being a Native American uh, living in an urban environment. And... Yeah, I think it's important that he wanted to remember what Native Americans have been going through. And he wanted to still just keep this tradition alive. And, uh, you know, he's not wrong. Uh, it could be worse. Like, it could be like, <laughs> all right, and every year we start like a mini purge over here where we just start going absolutely bonkers on uh, white people. Yeah, we talked about this last episode, but there's literally no law enforcement in Sicily to stop stop that from happening. Uh, so Joel is there to get some mail. And we'll get right there in just a second. I did also want to say the reason why Dave is there is because he's like trying to get some tomatoes and Ruth Ann says, no, like we're clean out. Of course, there's like a high demand for tomatoes uh, during the season. He, he, Dave even asks for like canned tomato sauce or anything like that. Ruth Ann says, you're, you're not going to throw canned tomato sauce at white people, are you? He says, no, no, no. We're, we're just trying to make a marinara sauce at the brick, but there's literally no tomatoes. <laughs> There's also, um, I don't know if you got this, but Dave is wearing a Seattle Seahawks cap. No, no, I didn't catch that. Yeah, that's just more proof that the series was filmed in Washington near Seattle. Uh, yeah, that's right. So shot in Roslyn, Washington, very close to Seattle. Sometimes we'll catch like, uh, I think in one episode it was like the, the Seattle radio station was on a bumper sticker for a car. Now we got the Seahawks hat. You know, sometimes we see like uh, local breweries around Washington up here uh, on on beer bottles, you know? Well, anyway, Joel opens this letter and basically determines that due to inflation or currency changes and things like that, 
instead of having to serve uh, the four years of his um, his stay in Alaska as a doctor, uh, in order to repay for that scholarship or whatever, to repay the state of Alaska, he's got to serve five years now. It is true that the time value of money is that your dollar has less value uh, in the future than it is today because you can spend it right now. Mm-hmm. That is true. Um, inflation always goes up in that manner. I don't know if that's ever true on a contract, though. Like, that sounded really odd to me because right. how does that work on a – like, there's interest. I understand that. That's what you pay uh, because you took out the loan in the first place. But I've never heard of, like, a currency change in inflation and being like, all right, well, your mortgage is more expensive. you got to pay it off even longer. That, that felt really odd to me. So Joel tries to contest this, and he goes to, like, the – resident lawyer that he knows, Mike Monroe, you know, the bubble man is also a lawyer, which we've sort of, uh, found out maybe ex lawyer, but anyway, uh, some legal advice. So he goes over to, to Mike's bubble. You know, he's got this amazing garden. All of the native Americans are like going through Mike's garden, getting tomatoes and stuff, uh, while Joel is there and they're trying to figure well, Joel, I think wants to hire Mike to, I don't know, fight back against whatever this is, but there is some, what is the verbiage in this? Uh, yeah. So I just went back and watched the scene. They read, they read it off pretty quickly, but Mike says he's reading the contract. He says something about variables, about cost of living increase. Uh, and then he talks about inflation and, and things like that. I, I'm still not buying it. I, I really, I, I'm not too sure how it works for a tuition, but I'm pretty sure it would be a similar principle to a loan. Right. That only affects interest rates, like it, which could benefit both the borrower or the lender, depending on which way the pendulum is swinging. But for it to drastically affect your stay and for you to a have to year. pay off a whole year <laughs> is kind of ridiculous. I. I think that is like gibberish. That is just, <laughs> that is not how money works. Uh, in, I mean, I could be entirely wrong on this. I didn't study economics. I, I studied <laughs> accounting, but like just on my, my understanding of how financial transactions works, I just don't think you would have to work an entire year on That's five a year lot. difference. Yeah. It's not like, yeah, it's not like the inflation was like a hundred years ago. Like it's only from 18, uh, 1986 to Presumably 1992, 1993. Yeah. Well, the writer here, uh, writers or writer's room or whatever, try, trying to pull a fast one on us. But hey, whatever you got to do to keep keep the seasons of Northern Exposure coming, you know, sign me up, okay? <laughs> <laughs> uh, so Joel is now in sort of this perpetual depression. He's seen walking about uh, Main Street, Sicily, kind of haggard looking. He hasn't shaved. And he is, he, I love this scene. He like literally calls out. He's like, all right, come on, throw the tomatoes. I know you want to do it. He's, he says like, uh, it's open season on Joel Fleischman. And uh, I just love that line. But also I thought it was interesting. I was reading the Moose Chick entry for this episode. And apparently whenever Hallmark uh, syndicated this show, they cut that line from this episode. It's open season on Joel Fleischman. Really? Yeah. Um, was it because it would lead to gun violence? Yeah, I think that's kind of the only idea I've got there is like maybe hunting or gun violence or, or something uh, wasn't wasn't jiving with their um, sponsors. Hmm, strange. So we're on to the next scene where Maurice is talking with Marilyn. He's kind of like, uh, he's like a volunteer firefighter brigade or something. 
Wait, what? It's a it's a it's a volunteer fire brigade, and they're trying to keep the peace around the town. So they're going about saying what can and can't be used. So like, oh right, presumably I'm, they were yeah. saying like fireworks couldn't be used. Uh, these <laughs> pyrotechnics couldn't be used. Yeah, yeah, because so Maurice is trying to get sort of a a rundown of the parade, the show from from Marilyn, and of course she's. She's uh doesn't have a lot to say. She doesn't respond a whole lot. And Maurice is like, "Look, you got to tell me something. Like, are there going to be fireworks? I got to let the I got to let the fire department know." Um, for whatever reason, Maurice is very bureaucratic here, but I guess it kind of fits with his character. Um, Joel is just kind of caught here, and he <laughs> he begins to sort of like yell in frustration at Maurice, basically saying like, "You you've taken another year of my life." Why don't you take the tie off my neck? Why don't you take the shirt off my back? And uh, he like, you know, Maurice is just like, I'll pull it together, Fleischman. I'm, I'm, you know, and Maurice like walks out and Joel falls him out and starts to like take his pants off. I think by the end of the scene, he's like pantsless. He's got his, he's basically <laughs> stripping down for Maurice. Yeah, I, I thought it was really odd because it's not like it was Maurice that whenever to them and negotiated one more year on Joel's Yeah, contract. I think, isn't Joel, like, he's like, you had something to do with this, but I'm not sure. Did he say that or something like that? Yeah, I, I think he was implicitly trying yeah. to say that, like, he was responsible for this, but I highly doubt that. It, it just seems like he's just venting his frustrations toward him. He's simply the one who's benefiting from him being screwed by a system. Right, so. yeah. But obviously there's more playing here than uh, what's, you know, what he's demonstrated. But I love that Joel is like, you know, this is kind of classic Northern exposure, like bringing us back to Joel being like the victim, being trapped here in this situation. And I love how when Maurice leaves, he says goodbye to Marilyn. And we get a shot of Marilyn. She says like goodbye to him. And she's got a smirk on her face because Joel is just freaking out. He, Joel starts bullying his patients too. There's like a scene where he like really is phoning it in at work and he's just uh, he's just in a very bad mood. Yeah, I thought for a second that he was trying to do a strategy of trying to get fired, but then <laughs> that would be even worse because then that would mean he would never finish his. Um, yeah, because he would owe. He owes like the his work is how he's paying it back essentially. Yeah, yeah. So this would be a terrible strategy, right there. But yeah, you're right. He's just kind of going through the motions and kind of yelling at all his patients. And that's where he gets into the little dream. Yeah, we got a dream sequence. Again, this this episode feels like uh, classic Northern Exposure. And I guess we have Mike Monroe, but uh, so like a newer character. But, it, you know, he, does, he, he doesn't ruin the show for me this episode. So the dream. Tell us about the dream, Charles. Yeah, so it's got Sisyphus rolling the rock. Yeah, for those of you who aren't familiar, it's a classic Greek myth where Sisyphus is punished for his deceitfulness and he has to roll a giant boulder up a hill and once it gets to the top the boulder rolls back down and he's gotta push it back up the hill and he does it forever and ever yeah it's like this never-ending torture you know he thinks he's got the goal in sight and just before he can reach the top it, it rolls all the way back down very much like Joel's situation he's getting very close to the end of his stay in Alaska and is notified that now he's got to stay longer it's a little bit of an over exaggeration in my opinion yeah it's not <laughs> <laughs> you're doing this to pay off a loan it, i mean it's not forever joel is yeah he's very defeatist he's yeah he's not in a great place and uh well in this dream 
I think it's like Sisyphus is basically like, um, great, like this is this is how you do it. You know, you want to uh, bend from the knees. You know, you want to do it like this. Basically, Joel is now Sisyphus, uh, Sisyphus's uh, replacement. So Joel's going to be forced to do this in the dream world. But thankfully, Marilyn wakes him up. Um, we get a pretty cool sort of top-down, almost like bird's-eye shot. Joel is sleeping in his office on the like the patient table. Uh, you know, it's a very groggy, slow drag to get Joel awake and to get some coffee brewing for Joel. Right, and this is where Marilyn explains to Joel why they have the parade in the first place. And I think we have a soundbite for this. Let me ask you something. The Indians up here. Thanksgiving is also the day of the dead, a, a, a time for mourning, right? Because of white people. Uh-huh. So, I don't understand. Why the parade, the, the costumes, the music? Why the celebration? You don't know the story? No, I, I guess I don't. See, death, like the white man, wasn't happy in his own land. He didn't think his kingdom was big enough. He wanted more. One night, when the good spirit was asleep, death attacked the world. He killed a lot of people, and he took the chief's prettiest daughter as his bride. She pretended to be a good wife, but one day she secretly fed him a pumpkin seed. The pumpkin grew and grew inside death. Finally, he exploded, and a million pumpkin seeds covered the earth. Well, I still don't get it. A lot of people died, but a good thing came out of it, too. What was that? Pumpkins. It's the same with white people. They cleared the forest, they dug up the land, and they gave us a flu. But they also brought power tools and penicillin and Ben and Jerry's ice cream. You know about Ben and Jerry's ice cream? I've seen ads. Yeah, so clearly it's a story about silver linings and trying to get the best from the worst situations that you can and trying to explore new avenues whenever you're in an unfamiliar situation or a place. You know, uh, really trying to bring a new perspective on Joel's situation right here. Yeah, that's true. It definitely applies not only to the holiday, obviously, and to just an, an outlook in life. But yeah, this is something that Joel maybe needs to 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 subscribe to or uh, to get himself out of this depression he's going to have to like cope with it in some way yeah i just want to say well this is very reminiscent of soulmates the sort of christmas episode where we get sort of the raven mythology um which marilyn tells the story of that in that episode and so very similarly here she kind of gives us a new mythology about uh the pumpkin seeds and death I thought it's kind of funny. She, Marilyn says, a lot of people died, but a good thing came out of it too. Joel says, well, what? What was that? Pumpkins. And it's silly. It's like, no, that's that doesn't amount. Like, that's no, that's there's no balance there. But I think it's, uh, like you said, Charles, it's about sort of silver linings. Uh, this Day of the Dead celebration is a way to recognize the atrocity of what happened. Uh, but you also got to move forward. You know, you got to look at what you've got. 
Um, power tools, penicillin, Ben and Jerry's ice cream. I love uh, how Joel and Marilyn sort of share a smile at the end of the scene. I think that's sort of starting to pave the way for Marilyn to sort of take Joel under her wing, you know? Yeah, definitely. I think that there's a lot of different ways that you can interpret Thanksgiving. I think they went in the direction of uh, imperialism, where they were saying, like, this is the dangers of it. Uh, but there's also, like, the other angle of uh, being pro-immigration, like people mm. coming over from a new land, and it was unfamiliar, and they're trying to survive, and what the country would become because of these immigrants that came over and started, you know, the American experiment. Uh, but... Either way, that they decided to paint it right here, I do like that they're tying it into the Day of the Dead because while death might be like the ultimate uh, sadness, it might be the the end-all, be-all of all things, they're at least trying to find joy within death. So it's kind of going as a parallel with that story. Definitely, yeah. And actually, Charles, I remember when I asked you last week, your prediction was uh, that Chris was going to maybe have some sage words about immigration. So that's something that's not really touched on necessarily in this episode. But I agree. That would make a great uh, Thanksgiving episode of a TV show. Are there? Speaking of, do you have a favorite Thanksgiving episodes? Do, do any come to mind? Uh, you know, it, it's a, like I said, it's not as celebrated as Christmas maybe in film and TV. But I wonder what comes to mind Thanksgiving episodes. Yeah, the uh, Indians in the Lobby is a really popular one from the West Wing. But oh, yeah. They actually have two great Thanksgiving episodes. <laughs> uh, they have Indians in the Lobby is the one that I just mentioned, and that's about them dealing with the injustices that Native Americans have been going through. Uh, and that one actually has a really great scene in the beginning of the episode where they're saying they're having two representatives from the Native American colonies coming over, and they're just staying at the White House lobby, and they're not moving. And CJ has to come downstairs and say, and CJ has to come downstairs and say, I'm sorry, we can't take you right now. There's nobody available. You guys will have to come back later. And then they refuse to move. They're saying like, no, we're going to stay right here. And there's going to be a lot of cameras pointed at us. And you're going to have to explain to them why we're here because of the land that you robbed us of. And then CJ says like, well, I'm sorry. But like, sometimes you just have to wait a little bit longer. These things happen in the bureaucratic system. How long have you guys been waiting? And they go, uh, 15 years. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, that is an awesome episode. Um, I was trying to think about like my favorite Thanksgiving episodes, but I don't know. Like, I don't, I, I don't know that it's been so well represented in TV very much. There's some good movies. Like, um, I really like the movie pieces of April with Katie Holmes. Um, that's a, that's a pretty fun Thanksgiving movie, but when it comes to TV, you know, I, I've been watching, Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Apparently, there's a really good Thanksgiving episode in Buffy, but oh. uh, I haven't gotten that far. I, I'm going to go ahead and say this is, I think this is a phenomenal Thanksgiving episode, particularly because it has that perspective of uh, that the, the tomatoes, throwing tomatoes at white people. It's hilarious. It's, it's funny, but at the same time, it, it's um, in response to something very dark, you know? Yeah, yeah. It's trying to inject some humor into an incredibly heavy subject right there. Yeah, I think it does a really good job at balancing that. Well, okay, so I think we're almost kind of winding down with Joel here. Let's see. He ends up hiding in his office again, you know, like hiding under his uh, desk, and Marilyn has to kind of drag him out, and I got a little bite here I'll play. Don't take this personally, Marilyn, but... I'm not going to be able to attend your Thanksgiving parade. I mean, it would be the slightest bit hypocritical, seeing as how I have absolutely nothing to be thankful for. 
And as we said, this is when Marilyn either takes pity on him or recognizes that he has uh, shed his whiteness or I don't know, like he's ready. He's lost all hope. And she's really got to, you know, he's, he's got he's to gotta come march. Yeah, so which brings us to the next scene where we're going through the parade and Joel is marching in it. I don't think he's in a costume. I'm pretty he's, sure he's just wearing like a black vest or something. He's got like a fur on. And actually, wow, that's probably the fur that he was gifted in the episode Our Tribe when he's adopted to the tribe. Oh. That's probably the same fur. Because remember, they make a joke about it. It's like, wow, this yeah. fits perfectly. Uh, yeah, Chris points out to Ruthann, they're watching the parade, and then he says, oh, look, it's Joel. He looks like a big angry bear, or a big old grumpy bear. <laughs> yeah, so he's just marching down in the parade. Uh, I think he stops to say hello to Ed, or at least Ed runs by to right, him and yeah. tries to talk to him a little bit. But otherwise, uh, I, I don't even know if he needed it, or maybe it's something that he needed to look back on, but at the moment... He is obviously not enjoying it. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think it's interesting. So this is kind of wrapping up the end of the Joel storyline. Uh, the Thanksgiving Parade. The music is Cabaret by Louis Armstrong. It's pretty awesome. And uh, the parade sort of like winds its way to the brick where they're having this big potluck, a huge spread, all sorts of food. And Joel is sitting next to Ed and they're talking about the parade. Joel is talking about you know, again, he's grumpy. He's talking about how, you know, he, he has to serve more time in Alaska than someone who is like a criminal, someone like murder one, you can get out in four years. But for Joel Fleischman, you got to be stuck in Alaska for five years. It's kind of like what you're saying, Charles, is like in the moment, he may not recognize how good he's got it or how happy he is because he is complaining to Ed in the scene but the very last line he says is like they're you know they're eating food at this potluck and he says oh wow that's good i think to me that just shows like no matter how much you can complain you're sitting down eating some great food and hanging out with ed chigliak you know so i think i think it's yeah. a happy moment no, go ahead yeah exactly so there are worse prisons to be in than the literal prison that chris was in so yeah. he's going in there. He has a selection oh, wow, yeah. of uh, food. You know, he's asking for dark meat. He's um, He has freedom in this town. So it's another way for him to, like, be juxtaposed against what the real big things are in life. Like, having to serve one more year to pay off your tuition, in the grand scheme of things, it's not much. Exactly. And uh, one thing I'd like to point out, uh, Joel asks for dark meat here, but... I think it's that, yeah, it's the episode where uh, we were just talking about the Halloween episode where Maggie like does her pre-planned Thanksgiving meal. Joel asks for white meat. It's like the, he says like white meat, no skin, you know? So at least if anything, um, Sicily, Alaska has, has given him a, a better taste, like a better palate. I don't know. <laughs> All right. So we can get to the next plot line, which is Mike and Maggie. Trying to go through, trying to prepare dinner with each other. Yeah. Throughout this episode, I think it begins with like Mike inviting Maggie to come over and uh, work work on some Japanese eggplant. And uh, uh, it's interesting to note that he starts out like he's walking out and about with no spacesuit, you know. And I think whenever we see him with Joel, again, he's he's like kind of just out in, in nature, like in his garden. Uh, though he does request that Joel not get so close with the paper because of, uh, I don't know, he's got some sort of aversion to paper. But uh, yeah, 
So it starts off um, with Mike in sort of good health, but as we see throughout the episode, as he's getting working with Maggie and getting closer to Maggie, these reactions start to occur. But let's see. Mike and Maggie are in the dome, in the bubble, and sort of preparing stuff for the potluck, I guess, that we'll see later. And, uh, you know, they, they get a little close. I think they they talk about like, it's been a while since I've been in a kitchen with a woman or something like that. And they start talking about strudel, I think, but it's very double entendre. Like it's very sexualized. Like, are they really talking about strudel or something else? Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, it's got a lot of innuendos right there. Um, a lot of sexual tension going on in the scene and it makes them freak out because then they have to reevaluate the state of their relationship and whether they like, like, or only regular, like, (laughs) you know, one of those like regular classic sitcom things right there. But that is where Mike starts to come down a little bit more because we see in the next scene, they're at the brick and Mike is wearing a mask now. Yeah. And right there, he's ordering a watercress tea. And he doesn't, like, he's not really into the mood to talk, even with Maggie when she comes by. And if anything, he's in a doomer mindset because he's talking to Shelly and telling her, like, all right, well, if you experience these symptoms, uh, then you need to, like, detox, you need to stay inside your home, you need to, you know, prepare for the worst and all there. So he's not in a great state of mind. Yeah, and he's, like you said, he doesn't really have a lot of time. He seems like not to have a lot of time to spend with Maggie because he gets out of there quickly. And uh, this is the big scene, is um, Maggie comes to Mike's bubble again, and Mike declares that uh, he has to move somewhere else, that he's going to move to Greenland. Yeah, he's got to move out because earlier he was speaking with Ed, and he was really disappointed because he can't pinpoint what's causing Right. Changes That's right. Yeah. So the only solution left is just to leave the place entirely. So he chooses Greenland. And that's also where he goes and tells Maggie that, you know, because she's a pilot, she could fly down to go see him. You know, there's no reason why they can't still be friends. Yeah. And uh, he says, you know, you could visit me. We could still be friends. I really think it's kind of touching here. I know I say that sometimes the chemistry is a little awkward between Mike and Maggie, but, uh, I really like Janine Turner, you know, Maggie's performance here where she's like, she's like, please like, don't leave. I don't, I don't exactly have the line, but you know, she has to kind of, she sort of changes her whole tone and speaks very slowly and clearly to Mike. And what happened in that first scene when they were cooking, I think she acted, they actually like bump hands and that's what kind of sets it off. But in this scene, there's a very deliberate uh, Maggie like touches Mike's hand deliberately. There's a close up too that kind of like signif- uh, signals that. And <laughs> just to, as a sillier note, I just want to point out on uh, Moose Chick's summary of the episode online, uh, they say Mike threatens to move his bubble to Greenland. Parentheses. Don't let us keep you, Mike. <laughs> like apparently Mo- <laughs> Moose Chick is not a fan of Mike, the Mike Monroe Wait, character. Hang on, hang on, hang on, hang on, hang on. Can we talk about this tweet that we had gotten that someone sent us to um, oh, yes. our um, Twitter account? Yes. The username is you're sticking pins in my doll. And he or she writes, I hate Mike with the fire of a thousand suns. I could get federal funding for as much as I've thought about this plot turn and as badly they messed up with his character. Yeah, no. And they are, you know, they're not kidding. They have a really in-depth, uh, like seven part 
um, sort of like treatise on why Mike Monroe does not belong, like what's going on there. So I definitely recommend you go check out on our Twitter um, at Northern Over Pod. Check out your sticking pins in my doll. Uh, their, their response there. Just, just uh, this was back whenever we talked about I think Mike's introduction episode. So that's uh, season four, episode five, and uh, sort of a long conversation about. <laughs> Yeah, it's pretty great. I just love I love the idea that the federal government would get involved to fund your research, like to, to be like this is a this is a matter of national importance. Here's we have some a, money. We can learn a lot from how bad Mike is. No, well, I should say um, I did post the question to uh, the Facebook group uh, Club NX, and uh, you know, like the question being like, do you like Mike? Do you not like Mike? And um, I always said, Charles, that this was a character that I wasn't very fond of, uh, kind of a dark uh, cloud above season four. But, you know, I'm like I said, I'm trying uh, my hardest to kind of give him the benefit of the doubt. It's not the worst thing. And there are plenty of great episodes that feature Mike Monroe. And on the Facebook group, I was uh, surprised and delighted to see how many people really liked Mike, um, how many people also mentions like, you know, when I first watched it, did not like Mike, but as I've grown older, I like Mike a lot more. I don't know if that's happening to me. I'll say I'm still not the biggest fan of Mike, but, uh, but you know, I'm not going to totally write him off anymore. Again, though, on the Facebook group, there are a lot of people who hate Mike. Um, and also there was, I can't remember, I I should have uh, pulled up this page before we started recording, but, uh, one of my favorite responses was just, uh, someone responded, Goose, like the <laughs> character from Top Gun. Yeah. So, who? Okay. So Mike Monroe. Uh, this is this scene when he's claiming or he's threatening to move to Greenland. It's sort of the dark night of the soul here in this uh, plot line. But the next time we see Mike is during the Thanksgiving parade, the Day of the Dead parade, I should say, and uh, he's walking around in his spacesuit. So you got the joyous music. Mike's back. He hasn't left. And, uh, in fact, he goes into the brick and is eating with Maggie. And, uh, he says like, what the hell, you know, I know I'm going to pay for this, but pulls off his space helmet and just starts eating, you know, drumstick candied yams. And, you know, in the end, I think that's, that's kind of like indicative or relatable to what we all feel during Thanksgiving. You know, we're like, what the hell I'm going to pay for this, but I'm going to like gorge and like stuff myself and overeat but i mean (laughs) what can you do uh i think that mike grabs a drumstick that is at least in my eyes is definitely a prop like it is just it looks like a drumstick (laughs) that a caveman would eat in a cartoon well you know like uh turkey drumsticks are notably like huge you think about like ren fair you know like renaissance fair turkey drumsticks that's true yeah maybe it was a real one well let me take a look here yeah it's hard to say if that's real or fake, but, you know, even if it was real, it was probably, you know, the props department probably came over to it, glossed it over, like made it look really good for camera, you know? So it might be a, right. it might be a hybrid. I would also want to say that I like the suit that Maggie is wearing. Um, that's very nineties fashion of it. Wide lapels that she's wearing right there paired with a turtleneck. Yeah. Got that red turtleneck and sort of like this, uh, it's almost plaidish, but it looks very, uh, very thick jacket. Looks very uh, keep keep you warm. You know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's uh, pretty sure it's made of tweed from what yeah, I'm looking at right here. Yeah. 
But anyway, we get to the last final plot line, which involves Chris. And, of course, it begins with him using on K-Bear. Yeah, I think uh, some of the early, you know, some of his earlier broadcast monologues in the episode are talking about, uh, you know, the Day of the Dead and uh, really talking about sort of Thanksgiving the origins. You know, I think he mentions Miles Standish, who I'm not still not entirely sure who that is, uh, and, and Sarah J. Hale, who is credited for sort of like almost like inventing the holiday. She's uh, famous for being the author of the nursery rhyme, Mary Had a Little Lamb, but also sort of, um, let's see, famously campaigned for the creation of the American holiday known as Thanksgiving. Oh, wow. That's kind of crazy. And I, I know that some people are going to demonize her, but just in terms of influence that she's had in this country, I, she is definitely a pioneer in that in creating both Mary Had a Little Lamb and just creating Thanksgiving. Yeah, definitely a very strong legacy, which is pretty awesome to know that it was a you know a woman who created it, not not just like a white old white man, you know. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah, so Chris uh, also. <laughs> Well, it's like while Chris is on screen, he's watching across the street. Uh, he sees like a Native American just like peg this uh, this like white lumberjack man with a tomato. And uh, the white man just like chuckles and puts his arm around the Native American and they go walk, walk off. So it's, you know, and I think, uh, oh, this is something that is, I guess, not in any of the major plot lines. But Shelly gets pegged, you know, by a tomato. <laughs> And I think that's a hilarious scene as well. Yeah, she gets hit with a tomato right in front of Ruth Ann's store, which is where she goes inside to go buy some more supplies. And she also meets with Chris, who's a little bit downtrodden right there. Yeah, so when she meets with Chris, is this in the store or is this uh, at the brick? It's in the store, but previously she did meet with Chris in the brick where he had ordered a club sandwich, but he wasn't going to eat it because he lost his appetite. There's something... There's like a hole in his heart mm -hmm. that he can't identify, kind of like Mike's situation, where there's something off with him. Yeah. He can't pinpoint exactly what's wrong. And I like how uh, Shelly goes, is like, um, you get enough butt? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. She's like, yeah, it's a sexual thing. She's like, uh, he needs that outlet maybe. But uh, he does, he, he thinks he can sort of term it, but it's... Uh, undescribable he he says the germans call it weltschmerz which uh would mean a feeling of melancholy and world weariness so he doesn't know what caused it but he just feels this total uh, weariness dread it's also kind of reflected in um at one point when he's on the air uh right he's like broadcasting and he says like uh you know autumn is a time for reflection it sort of makes me feel and then he's kind of stuck at a loss for words. He's like, I don't know. You know, he this is not typical for Chris, you know, to not be able to place his thoughts. Right, exactly. And it's not until we get inside Ruthann's store that mm. he realizes why. And it's triggered by him seeing these cans of beans. Yeah, he pegs these beans. Uh, he's like, whoa, these are the exact same brand that we ate when we were in prison. And uh, it's just like a rush of memories, like the flavor, the aroma, probably the look of those cans. Um, let me actually see. I've got the I've got the scene pulled up. Let me see what the brand is. It may have just been invented for the show, but it's all kitchens. Wonder if that's a real brand. Hmm. 
It's hard to say if it was a real brand or maybe just made for the show. There is a brand called All Kitchens Brands, but it doesn't uh, it doesn't look like the same thing. Mm. But yeah, Chris realizes that this is what he's been missing. This uh, this nostalgia almost. Yeah, he misses like that quote unquote that family that he had in Thanksgiving since it was established earlier that he had no childhood Thanksgiving growing up. Him and his dog would go scavenge the neighbor's trash cans for whatever they could find. And the one in prison is the only one that he's actually had with people that he cared about. Yeah, yeah, exactly. He, uh, you know, this this throws it back to sort of the Jacques Pepin idea of Thanksgiving, uh, you know, like gathering with food and friends. And I'm also reminded of the Judd Apatow film, Funny People. Did you see that one, Charles? Uh, I actually saw it with you. Nice. Wait, do we see this in theaters? Yeah, we saw it in theaters with a third person that I've forgotten. <laughs> trying to remember who it was. I remember this because at the time, I didn't think the movie was very funny, yet it was called Funny, funny People. People. Yeah. It's, I would say, um, if you haven't seen it, listener, it's probably my favorite Judd Apatow film, but it's probably way longer than it needs to be. Uh, it's very personal. It's... It's funny. It has a lot of comedians in it, but uh, you know, it's definitely a dramedy style. Anyway, the reason I bring it up is because uh, there is a Thanksgiving scene where it's just like you know, Adam Sandler invites all of his friends over, and it's like young people. It's mostly like Seth Rogen's friends there, whose whose character is younger than obviously Adam Sandler. And Sandler gives the speech. He's like. Uh, you know, remember this moment, like take a look around at all your friends, like no families here. This is just like all of our friends gathered in one place. Believe me, like when you get my age, this is the kind of thing that uh, never comes back. Like you don't get this again. So, you know, remember this. And this is the feeling that Chris has, you know, like one, you, you may never get these friends back, but two, like that was like prison too. That was like a whole other world for Chris, but still so much a part of him uh, that he's missing at this time of year, you know? Yeah, exactly. He's still able to, you know, he's still able to grow something in those prison yards. A little scrap of grass can grow between the cracks mm. right there. I like uh, in the next scene with Chris where he's on the radio at K-Bear and he says this line, got a message today via some tin cans and dig this. There wasn't even any string hooking them up. I love that idiom. It's very very clever writing. Yeah, you know, it's like, it's crazy because he's talking about the cans of beans. Uh, but you, he's evoking that image in your head of tin cans with like a little string attached to them, like little walkie-talkies, you know, a little telephone. Uh, but it's cool to think about in sort of this weird metaphysical way that there is a message sent through a telephone line that's just, a, you know, not even that at all. It's just a can of beans. But uh he, the, the rest of that quote is, he says, uh, they helped me recall that it was behind bars amongst 400 cons that I enjoyed the best Thanksgiving of my life. I think also in this broadcast, he, uh, he may end it with the phrase, the mellow sweetness of pumpkin pie off a prison spoon is something you'll never forget. Um, just this whole broadcast that he does in this scene, super heartwarming. I think, go, go ahead. Su yeah, super heartwarming. But let's not forget, like, 10 seconds before he says that line, he said that someone got stabbed. Yeah, he kind of, <laughs> like, but he remembers it with, uh, with like, a smirk, you know? It's very Yeah, serious, well, like, but... the guy who got stabbed isn't remembering it with a smirk. <laughs> what if he died? What if he, like, got him in one of his vital areas? <laughs> it is funny how, 
if you if you're trying to be nostalgic about prison, you're gonna have to <laughs> smile at stuff like that. You know, they talk about because you know you this scene by any other character would be um, more wholesome. I mean, not saying that this isn't wholesome, but the characters in Chris's history and his past are people who are shiving people, people who are drinking like Applejack, you know, bootleg liquor that they made, uh, just having a rowdy time. I love he um, invokes the Joy King George character back in prison uh, who reads, uh, he quotes a passage from Pilgrim's Progress. He says, a man there was, though some did count him mad, the more he cast away, the more he had which uh, underlines the idea that during these Thanksgiving holiday times, it's not about what you have. It's about what you throw away. And, you know, you you don't need a lot of things to be the richest man in a way. You know, you just got to have your friends and buddies around, I guess. Right. And that's how it ends with Chris, because he wants to reconnect, have those interpersonal connections again. So he calls up Warden Viglietta. On the uh, yeah on the air yeah they get the warden from the prison uh, on K Bear and it's pretty it's pretty cool like he's I think Chris is like all right uh, bear with me listener like give me a second gonna patch through and it's like we made contact and the warden hands the phone over to some of uh, Chris's buddies who are still in prison and the substance of the scene is just. Um, you know, stuff that kind of maybe goes over your head. It's not really significant in the plot, but it's clear to see that Chris is uh, now able to reminisce in real time with uh, his memories and with the people in his past. I do also want to say about this whole theme of Chris's uh, plot line, this whole idea that Thanksgiving is about the food and the friends. Uh, it really made me think specifically in his uh, his like radio address monologue, that communion and friendship and being with your friends, that's like the, one of the beautiful parts of Thanksgiving. But also I think that in a large way is what Sicily, Alaska is. You know, I think that's the appeal of this TV show to uh, the people who watch it is just this clear feeling that everyone in Sicily treats each other like like a friend. Yeah, so it's a close-knit community that... You have a lot of eccentric characters. Many of them are ideologically opposed, but they all understand and love and respect one another. And, you know, it's really emphasized on this episode where they just have a giant parade just go through town. Um, people are just getting pelted with tomatoes. And everyone's taking it in good faith. Well, except for, you know, the newcomer, Joel Fleischman. But you understand that in this small little town, it's kind of like a a melting pot of different people and expressions and worldviews all just coming together and just celebrating Thanksgiving. Yeah, definitely. All right, so now is the time where we introduce our guest for today's episode. Her name is Harvest Moon, and she was actually an extra in several episodes, including this Thanksgiving episode. Yeah, before we started our fourth season of our podcast, Charles, we reached out to, you know, listeners of the show to try to put us in touch with anyone who had worked on Northern Exposure. And we got lots of feedback. And actually, Harvest Moon sort of like direct messaged us. And we've been uh, in contact over email. And I'm just really thrilled, really excited to have her on and really excited to share all the stories she's been telling me through email so far. So we've actually got a call, like an interview that we did with her. So let's go ahead and listen to that. So we've got Harvest Moon on the call with us. Hello, Harvest Moon. 
Hi, welcome. Thank you so much for joining us. We're really excited to have you on the podcast and just thank you so much for keeping in touch. And you and I have been emailing back and forth and I, I've loved all the stories you've told me so far. Um, but I just oh. wanted to, I just wanted to say, uh, well, tell us a little bit about yourself and how Northern Exposure came into your life. Well, oddly enough, my pickup truck got ran into and we were seeing a insurance adjuster mm. and uh, the agent at the insurance looked at both my husband and I and said, hey, you know, they're um, looking for extras on this new television show. And we go, well, we're, we're not from L.A. And he said, no, they're, they, they film in Redmond, Washington. And so he gave us the phone number and they gave us our address. We submitted our pictures. It was actually my husband that got chosen before I was. He got picked. They called and said, come on in. And he ran out to the grocery store and got some some logging clothes and boots and everything. And I drove him um, because he doesn't like to drive. So I drove him up to Redmond. And then what happened was the um, extra, which was John Ricky, he was at that time was in charge of us extras. He saw me and said, hey, get her in here too. So uh, that's how I got my little brown toe in. <laughs> and oh, then, wow. from, then on, from then on, we were used quite a bit. In fact, we were used so much that I eventually, uh, we moved right across the street from the studio. <laughs> That's awesome. And, uh, which was really nice because there were times when uh, they had extras to come in and he didn't show up because of the traffic or something happened. And so they, hey, Harvest, get over here as soon as you can. Yeah. They just come <laughs> knock on your so, door. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it, us extras actually became quite family. We were family as we were yeah. sitting in what they call the quote, quote, green room. Yeah. Uh, natives and non-natives. We even had um, one episode um, back in the corner. We had like four or five Seahawk players. Oh, wow. That, nice. that were extras. Oh, that's hilarious. And then if they were short on extras or they were just having a small crew, a lot of times the makeup, props, or grips or electrician or carpenters would step in and they were extras too. I so wondered. It was, I was, it was so fun to watch this last few days. I was watching it and go, oh, there's there's Rob Lozier. Oh, there's, you know. Yeah. I always wondered. I was, I thought like maybe they put some of the crew into the, into the behind the scenes extras, you know? Yeah. So it was an, an exciting. And then the thing that was also neat is, a lot of us natives, we didn't even know, like Circus de Saul, you know, yeah, the one uh -huh. where they had the, the guy with the broken leg and was yeah. smitten with um, um, Elaine Miles. All right. Uh, the the Moomin Shots. Yeah. And some some of the people from there. And like yeah. um, Burton, who was one of Maggie's boyfriends. Oh, yeah. He, that episode when she got sick on the river. He became uh, a, a star in Rules of Engagement. Mm -hmm. Patrick and, I met, yeah. and then I seen in the distance, I seen um, Stephen Root, and he was real oh. young at the time. 
Yeah, that's going to be in an episode uh, coming up, Charles. Stephen Root. Wait, Root Stephen Root? Have a, yeah, oh, we'll have a guest man. appearance. I'm so excited. Ready I for love Stephen Root. Yeah, he, he's oh. great. That's Oh, he's a youngin, man. He's a youngin. <laughs> that's for sure. But, how, uh, how is it living next to the town now? Like, do you still live next to the set? Oh, no. No, we uh, we we moved back. I'm in Tenino now. And, oh, okay. Uh, but we did get to see... Um, Unfortunately, after the last episode, uh, they had a, I think it was at least a three-day, a full three-day auction. Oh, wow, yeah. And people from all over came and they auctioned off, you know, everything from the moose to Mm -hmm. the piano to the, you know, and you could buy clothes or, you know, it it was a... A very sad ordeal in a yeah, way. It's, it's kind of the wow. funeral in a way. And then that catapult scene. Yeah. You know, they catapulted the piano. And then I was also in the Thule when Thule got, um, they threw oh, the coffin. Oh, yeah. They the did coffin. the coffin way out. Hey, that was, that was, they had about 12 caskets. And they, yeah. they did about six different times. Mm. And when they, they had about four or five left and all us extras were going, do it again, do it again. Because <laughs> it was just, you know, it went way up. It was right. It was in, I think, Rattlesnake Lake wow. is where that was filmed, which is the outskirts, you know, of up between Redmond and, and Rosalind. And uh, they finally had to get us Indians on the crew bus when it started snowing yeah. because when they had us on location in Roslyn, we had to go over Snoqualmie Pass. And a lot of us natives, we don't know how to drive in snow. Yeah, let's not do that. <laughs> Gotta be safe. So, so we started having, they started putting us on the bus and we rode up with the crew um, to be on location. Well, that's nice. There were actually three types of natives. They were the west of the mountain natives and then there were natives that um had full-time jobs so they they were extras they weren't on very often because of their their, their schedule mm-hmm. and then there was the east side natives so the yakimas and the, um bill yallop uh he's the one that was in the sweat and he actually threw tomatoes too oh, um, yeah. <laughs> he was from that side yeah. So are you, would you classify yourself as east side of the mountain? Um, I'm on the west side. You're the west side. Yeah. I was, I was over in the studio was in Redmond. You know, John Cullum was, um, never did move to the Seattle area. So he flew in from LA every day. Wow. That's what that's hauling. That's, in, that's crazy. And Shelly, they were going to have a young native girl to be Hollings girlfriend, oh, wow. mm-hmm. but they actually met Shelly in a just like a movie. They met her at a, as being a waitress, yeah. and uh, <laughs> she she got the part. And then you knew about Elaine Miles, didn't you? Oh, tell me. She actually drove her mother in for the audition. They wanted an older secretary, huh. and so she auditioned. And then the producer looks over and sees Elaine Miles sitting there. And goes, well, who are you? And I go, I'm her daughter. I drove her here. Well, get up here and let's try you. And <laughs> sure enough, they they picked her. So she was uh, 
quite nervous and and scared, you know, because yeah. a lot of these, you know, everybody like John Collum and Barry Corbin. I mean, those are the the grand hoobahs. I mean, yeah. they were they 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 were old time professional actor. Yeah, yeah, very yeah. professional. That's great, though. I think Marilyn, you know, she has that. She sort of has that soft spoken timidity. Like you're huh? saying, she was maybe a little nervous at first, but I think it works it, great it, for the character. It was, I think she said, yeah, it was by the time I got on, which was, I think, second or third season, mm-hmm. she was starting to get more relaxed and yeah. uh, she's not like that at all. <laughs> <laughs> I've seen some outtakes uh, from the show and she seems to be having a great time. Like she's laughing and she's uh-huh. uh, she's always, right. she's the one who cracks up at all of you know, Rob Morrow's jokes or something like that. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, you were, so before you were telling me your, your first episode, like whenever you remember the first time working on the show, can you tell us that right. again, that story? That, that Tundra, uh, it was the episode where Maurice was trying to uh, get the Tundra newspaper because everybody wasn't <laughs> reading it. Dateline and, Sicily. Uh, I think I got my elbow in as an extra. <laughs> <laughs> Because a lot of times, you know, because of the circumstances, you know, they edited it and yeah. put things in and out. You know, a lot so. of it gets lost. And I noticed too that in an extra, you do what you do what the extra director does want mm-hmm. you to do. And uh, the more often that you only see your back or not see your face, they use you more often. Yeah, as as an extra. <laughs> so. And then when John Cullum saw me working, he always, because I always got him to laugh. And so when John Cullum saw me working, it's in the bar. Yeah. I'm either in the bar or I'm repenting in the church or I'm walking in the in Rosalind. Uh, he saw me working, he always, hey, bring Harvest Moon up here. Bring her up, boil her up to the bar. Nice. And we would, I'd get up there and I'd get him to laugh. And that funny, the director was saying, hey, hey, hey. Hey, you two, we're going to separate you two if you, don't, <laughs> if you don't settle down. And we're not, we weren't allowed to, you know, we had rules. You weren't allowed to ask for any autograph or picture with right. them because, you know, they are working. A lot of us, as an extra in the bar, we didn't have our shoes on huh? because of the sound. The sound, okay. And yeah. um, we we didn't move, we didn't talk. We just moved our lips and they dubbed yeah. in the music and the and the and the sound later on. So what I did to make it more real is when they put me up with somebody, talking to somebody as an extra, I would actually be saying to them, Do you occasionally pick your nose? And then the, the other person that start so it would nod yes, and I go, you do? Oh, my goodness. <laughs> but it was just a way of making it more more real. Yeah, you know? getting a real and, reaction from people. Yeah, <laughs> and then I was walking by, and a, a gentleman came up, and he started talking to me, and I noticed he had a different accent, and I loved his accent. And so we sat there, and we talked for like 10, 15 minutes, and uh, so on and so forth. And then when I came back to the green room, everybody came up and said, hey, do you know who you were talking to? I go, no, I don't know who I was talking to. And they go, you were talking to Adam Ant. Uh. And I go, Adam Ant? 
that's the cartoon. And he goes, no, no, it's a rock star. And I go, oh, okay, you know. Yeah. And so it wasn't until later in the show that when, when it was on that I realized, oh, my gosh, I was talking to him, you know. Because if the actors talk to you, then you can, you know, yeah. you're permitted to talk, you know, with <laughs> them too. Yeah, you're not supposed to like walk up to them, but it seems like Adam Ant wanted to have a conversation. That's so awesome. Yeah, yeah it was. <laughs> and it was so funny too, because that episode, you know, how Shelly was really um, making a, being silly and, and having a big crush on him yeah. and everything. And the funny thing is, and one of uh, had mentioned that when we were doing the Thanksgiving episode, which we were filming actually in the end of August. So it was really mm. sunny. Yeah. Um, the props people would put um, actually lay out um, leaves that were orange colored out, you know, to make uh-huh. it look like it's fall and everything. And by this time, by the fourth season, uh, it was already, didn't it have some awards already? Oh yeah. I think it had already won its Emmys. Because there were but there were buses of tourists and carloads. There were barricades. Uh, they they wow. even started having um, bodyguard. They had a bodyguard for um, the actors to walk from their trailer to the set. Yeah. Well, it happened to be that day. Um, we were on location. There was probably four or five hundred people. Wow. Behind the barricades, wow. watching us watching us film on location, and John Corbett, he had a really bad cold. He wasn't a he wasn't a fever or anything. It was just a typical, you know, horrible cold. Yeah, he blew his nose, and there was like a dozen of us girls standing there waiting, you know. And he blew his nose and threw it in the garbage, and then he was called in to to be on, you know, to be ready to film. And some chick ran under the barricades and grabbed that tissue <laughs> and took it back. And us girls were just going, oh, my goodness. He's just yeah. a guy. Oh, <laughs> oh my God. Yeah. The celebrity. That, oh, go ahead, Charles. Is that before eBay was invented at that time? <laughs> like, would that have showed up there? <laughs> That's that's crazy. Yeah, it's it's uh, wild to think how popular and how big of a celebrity these people were, you know, at least for certain audiences. But it's uh, kind of sad that, you know, 30 years in the, you know, now, today, 30 years in the future, uh, you know, it's kind of uh, not a lot of people know about the show. But I mean, there are still, obviously, I was going to ask, do you still watch? I know you, uh, Harvest Moon, you've been watching since I've been emailing you, but have you ever gone back and rewatched the show or? Well, actually where I lived at the time before we lived, moved across the street from Northern Exposure, a lot of us natives, we didn't have good TV reception Mm. or we didn't have cable. And so a lot of the episodes I had never seen. And it was only about, probably about five years ago, I ordered the DVD set and, uh, when I watched it on the flat screen, I go, oh, my goodness. <laughs> yeah. I'm in it a lot, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, you you know, you've seen it only from your perspective, I guess, from working on it. So it's probably wild to see it, you know, in its, in its uh, finished form on this DVD. And it's kind of like watching it again for the first time. Well, I'm a storyteller. And yeah. I, 
I go to schools and at that time up in the Seattle area and um, or I do programs in libraries and such. And I always mention that I'm an extra on Northern Exposure. <laughs> and all the women always start blurting out their favorite character. I thought it would be like John Corbett, you know, the handsome uh-huh. DJ. No, the women were in love with Hauling. Wow. Yeah. And so that one day when I was bellied up to the bar and hauling or John, isn't it John? Colum, Colum, right? John Colum. Yeah. I shared with him. I go, hey, you know, women love you more than any of them. (laughs) He was going to give me a kiss. (laughs) I go, oh, I go on the cheek, on the cheek. (laughs) And he was just so amazed, you know, and that's that's how we we started starting out. quite a you know a friendship because everybody on the set um including the stars were so patient yeah i was gonna say i guess filming in such a small town like they're not shooting this in la everyone i guess you said john cullen would fly in but everyone kind of lives there you get you get very down to earth i would like to think you know just working with the same people again and again kind of this tight-knit community and like you were saying, just you you getting to know all the extras, like all the same extras again and again. It's sort of like your own little family. Yeah, right. Um, well, I was going to say also, so you were mentioning to me, you're in the Thanksgiving episode, which is what we were talking about today. Obviously, you're in a lot of the episodes this season, but you were telling me like you're in, uh, you're one of the owls in the coffin during the yeah. parade. And, Boy, we were, we went yeah. around and around that block a half a oh, dozen yeah. times. And it was interesting because the wardrobe and the makeup, they, they were, my outfit was the best out of yeah. all of them. And I was really surprised because gals go, try to get into the picture, try to get into the yeah. picture, you so know, so I tried to do, you know, get as much as I could into it. But yeah, uh, yeah. It, it was that that director because you know each director had each show had a, a different director right in fact adam adam um he was one a, a director of one of the shows too oh right uh adam arkin uh adam the, yeah. the person who yeah. plays adam yeah <laughs> yeah yeah that's right and um well, so you, are you also, I think you were telling me you're the, it's the scene when Shelly gets hit with a tomato and right. she says, hi, Randy, Melissa, happy Thanksgiving. I think that's yep. you, right? <laughs> that was me. And then I'm throughout the whole thing, actually. Yeah, you can I mean, see me walking around, helping with the decorations and such. So. Yeah. And it was really neat because there was this one local who um he would every day would walk down and get his mail from the post office and he was a cantankerous old man he didn't care if the film was rolling he didn't he just walked right through the set and everything so once in a while in fact there was one time a real drunk came out of the brick (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> uh, uh, and they got it they 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 caught him you know coming yeah. out of the brick and so they they got him into a corner and he had him sign the release form though and he is oh, on the show on one the of show. the shows <laughs> they oh, had man. to like track him down and he's probably so drunk he doesn't know what's going on but they're like here sign this please we need you we need your approval to put you in the show exactly art imitates life and then now there's another extra yomi he uh-huh. was, uh, I think he was Norwegian. Oh, he was wow. a short elderly man. And and I think um, 
Dr. Flashman is putting his arm around him. And he was a real nice extra. And he nice. lived over on the east. He lived over by Roslyn. And uh, sadly, he had passed away. And sure enough, see how how well loved the, the show was. At the end of the show, they actually dedicated the show to Yomi. Oh, wow. That's great. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. So. It was it was a, not a tear in the room when it was a, the last episode that was um, our town. Yeah, uh, that that was just the hardest thing. to. I mean, the, all the actors and actresses and extras and crew members, you know, were just really fighting back those tears, you know. Yeah, it's just trying to imagine like, you know, it's this tight knit community. It's almost like a. I always like to think of making a movie as sort of a bit like summer camp or something where you get together with a bunch of friends, but this <laughs> lasted for years, you know, like six seasons. So imagining right. the the end of the end of that is definitely an end of an, uh, an era of your life, you know? I have to ask, uh, on the episode that we were watching, the Thanksgiving episode, well, we had discussed that the natives would throw tomatoes at white people. Like, that had become the tradition <laughs> for them right there. Uh, I have to ask, did y'all actually take it a step forward? Like, uh, a step above, behind the scenes? Like, was it actually like, oh, like, you know, they're doing it in the show. I guess we can just do it here, too. Just start throwing tomatoes at all the white people on set. <laughs> Uh, it, it was all in the right. It was all in the writing. It was in the <laughs> script, you know. And oddly, um, it was his name was um, Tommy McLeod was the one that taught through, mm-hmm. and he threw a, a whole drive. But in actuality, um, the tomato was the prop people hollowed out the tomato and put tomato paste in it, and he actually only threw it. The prop guy threw it at Shelly from about right. three feet, you know, three feet away, you know. <laughs> and that's another thing. Once you've been an extra on a on a television show, you really see the magic of Hollywood. Yeah, like how it's actually done. One person yeah. throws the tomato, and then thirty minutes later, they set up another shot, and the tomato is thrown again, and it hits splatters. It's got the extra tomato sauce, like you're saying. That's right. Pretty awesome. Right. The special effects there, but it was all for fun, you know. Especially the the Hollywood, the Thanksgiving one was just the most. I think out of all of us Native Americans, I think we all enjoyed that one because you know, well, we could use tire, you know, like the yeah, cook, well, we could use tire irons. And, you know, like, oh my goodness, this is you know phenomenal, you know. I love that <laughs> it kind of gives the spotlight to the Native American characters in that episode, and uh, uh-huh. that's something like I. Growing up when I was watching the show, I you know, you don't really get to see a lot of Native Americans in film and TV. And in this show, I mean, sure, they're kind of represented as spiritualism and sort of mysticism, but they're also just like you've got Ed Chigliak, who's just uh, a, a kid who's grown up and he wants to be a filmmaker. Dave the Cook, who's just a line cook. So you got these just normal townsfolk hanging out with each other. Uh, but you get to see a lot more Native American representa- representation exactly. in the show. Exactly. We were, you know, actually being normal. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. Your average, just like, quote unquote, normal. It's like, it doesn't, it doesn't have to be all like cowboys and Indians or whatever, you know. But Yeah. 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 Like, you always see that in shows that are based in New York City. Like, New York becomes a character in the show where you're saying like, oh, look, look how crazy this city is. Whereas on this one, it's really unique that they decided to make Sicily a Alaska, like that's also a character in the show, but the uh, 
the people that make up Sicily, Alaska, which are mostly Native Americans right there, they're portrayed, like Lee was saying, like in just a really positive light in that they're just regular folks, like just trying to get through there. And you still don't even see television shows nowadays do that. Like if they have the opportunity to, they'll most likely someone will say like, no, that's not like, that's not what people want to see. They want to see like, you know, like a regular suburban place. You know, that's all they want to see. They don't want to see like any of that. And I think it's really nice that Northern Exposure went above and beyond and decided to say like, no, 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 like have all the extras also be them. Like have them be Native Americans, have them be regular people and just have that just play out. Like it's going to be fine. Yeah. So it's like, and two, it's so great too, because the people behind the, not only the props and the people that are making the show, it was also important that, uh, like, for example, when the, the, the guy who came and sold dresses to the yeah. town spent the day selling dresses, mm-hmm. uh, the producers actually brought in real couples. So it was oh. me and my husband in real life when we were dancing, you know, in in the bar with all our new dresses on and everything, um, everyone that you saw in that scene were in, were really married. Just like real people. And so it it was, you know, it was just like, you know, well, we were dancing with no noise, (laughs) you know, (laughs) but you know, just, that just shows you how, uh, how much of a, a microscope that they had to, mm-hmm. to be to be portrayed in in the best best possible way in the cinematography, uh, Frank Prince, yeah. uh, he was a phenomenal. In fact, a lot of us extras are so close to the cameraman while uh-huh. we're filming that we got to really know each other. Uh, I actually um, got to know the Steadicam operator. He came in once in a while to do certain shots. And one day at lunchtime, he said, uh, boy, I should wish somebody to come over and weed my garden because the, the, my landscaping guy wants to charge 20 bucks an hour. And I go, I'll do it for 10, but you got to fly me down to LA. Well, it turned out he wasn't from LA. He was from Bothell. And so I did end up <laughs> weeding his garden for ten dollars an hour. <laughs> and oddly enough, um, Polar Paul Pollard was the cameraman. His wife stepped up and did a documentary about my life. Mm. And um, she called me that night and said, "Hey, I got a cameraman to do um, our shooting tomorrow at the museum, so we'll meet you there." Well, I had just told. Um, Robert Bricky that I was going to weed his garden and he didn't know my name yet but when she showed up there was Robin Bricky <laughs> and, he, and I'm I'm in the middle of some fourth grade classes and I could tell when he turned to Tama and said hey is this who we're filming and he she goes yeah she's gonna weed my garden <laughs> <laughs> That's so cool. It's like not just working together on Northern Exposure, but you get to see each other every day, you know, in day-to-day life and working on other projects is very, it's very awesome. Was that, uh, was that part of the documentary? Like you weeding the person's garden? <laughs> yeah, it should have been, huh? <laughs> <laughs> the uh, documentary was uh, completing the circle because I was adopted out. And that wow. was another thing when I, I did audition for some talking, uh, for speaking parts, uh-huh. but uh, I didn't sound like a native. I don't sound, oh. and I, I told the director, I go, hey, 
you want me to talk like an Indian? I can talk like an Indian if you want, you know. But uh-huh. hey, I'm a native, and if I talk, I'm talking native. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's, I mean, you you sound. I to me, you sound like you're from the Pacific Northwest, like from that yeah, region, I, which makes sense to me. But um, well, I was gonna they, say, they, oh, go ahead. They use they use natives from all different tribes. There were Tulalips. Uh, there was some Nisqually. Tommy McLeod was a Nisqually. Uh, the person that was Elaine Miles's dad was Quinault. Oh, and wow. uh, Bill Yellup, who was from the East, he was the one that was in the sweat in the sauna and was fishing next to Ed and the cook. Oh. And uh, the yeah. cook was, he was like Elaine too. He, 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 was in there as an extra, uh-huh. but they popped him up and started giving him parts. And he had a little more difficult getting used to that. Uh-huh. Uh, finally, they they later down, you'll see that they finally let him go because he was just too nervous. Uh-huh. Well, um, well, before we wrap up, uh, Harvest Moon, I wanted to ask you, because uh, I was checking out your website and you were saying you're a storyteller. You, it also says you're a basket weaver. And, and I got to watch this really interesting, uh, I guess you would call it like a short form documentary, uh, which you're kind of the star of that episode talking about. Um, is that something you still do? You still do basket weaving or? I've been basket making for 45 years wow. and I, I sold quite a few baskets because when you're in the green room and waiting to be, you oh, know, yeah. you uh, you could be up to 12 hours, you know, yeah. working for a daily basis. And so I would go in there with my baskets and I had, I had some wardrobe, Elaine Miles bought one uh-huh. and some of the wardrobe people bought one. And like I said, the, the uh, cameraman, he, he saw me and, you know, that's how it came about to be the in the documentary. Oh, wow. So, so you're like, so you're also doing basket weaving when you're just on your downtime, when you're not uh-huh. on camera, because <laughs> there's so much downtime on set, I guess. They used me a lot because of that. I was self-employed and I oh. had my own hours. So, yeah, so you, you know, could just come. I was yeah. more, you know, at ease at getting in and out. I had a, a really uh, cool little scooter that I would... <laughs> right over to the to the um set and i park it there you know and i'd come out and all john corbett and everybody would be riding it around because it's so cool (laughs) (laughs) that's hilarious well thank you so much harvest moon i was gonna ask is there any like do you want us to promote any do you have any social media or your website or or anything like that for our podcast I don't know about this, but I just found out um, I was an extra for First Cow. What is it? It's that? a movie. It's oh, called First, First Cow. Cow. Yeah, with, yeah, yeah. And and um, I think her name was Kelly Riker was yeah. the director. Yeah, yeah. And as always, the crew and the extras really, uh, the crew and the and the actors really loved me because we were in the eighteen ten. It was a. It was a you know, dressed in cedar uh-huh. bark and everything. Kelly would call us tr- trees and uh-huh. I'd be going off into the woods because we were really a long ways from base camp. So I'd be walking into the woods and they go, what are you doing? I go, I'm getting into character. I've got to go take a pee. <laughs> <laughs> and then um, because I was such a hit on First Cow, next thing I knew I got called in and I'm also on the dark divide with the David Cross 
Okay, and nice. Deborah Missing, that's a big, that's a beautiful movie. And I'm just so lucky that I just happened to it on an Emmy Award TV show and now two <laughs> wonderful movies that, you know, that are hitting yeah. major, major. And I got a speaking part sort of in, in The Dark Divide. <laughs> it was really the director and the crew people like me on that one, too. <laughs> well, that's just proof right there. If you're just like a lovely human being and you treat others with respect and kindness, you know, good things will happen to you. Yeah. You know, it just opportunities and avenues will open up. Exactly. I'm a light shining forth in the midst of darkness. And uh, when I get nervous, I usually, you know, crack up jokes, you know? <laughs> yeah. So. Well, I'm glad to hear your uh, your film and your film career is continuing. Uh, we'll, we'll keep an eye out for you in First Cow and The Dark Divide. I hadn't heard about that one, but I just looked it up. That looks very cool. And as, as the seasons went on, I became a stand-in for Elaine Oh, wow. And I also, um, like I said, either in the tavern, the church, or walking in the streets. <laughs> <laughs> we'll keep our eyes out for you now. Like, we'll have to start a counter if we can notice you in an episode, Charles. We'll oh, yeah, definitely. The Harvest Moon instead of where, Instead of where, where's Waddle, Waldo, it could be yeah. where's Moon. <laughs> <laughs> Well, thank you so much for for oh having me a part of this. No, Have you spoken you. with Bill Yellup? I haven't. No, maybe you can put us in touch. Okay, I will because he's he's a real nice <laughs> nice gentleman. Yeah, and, uh, it's been it's been great. Like I think uh, I first we first started getting in t- contact with you was uh, from Facebook. So we had a lot uh-huh. of people respond on Facebook, and uh, but that was like that was months ago. So we needed to try to reconnect with some people and see. Um, now that we're podcasting again, well, cool. Uh, I'm going to, I'll stop the recording here, but we can still hang out and talk if that's cool. Okay. All right. That was the interview with Harvest Moon. I loved it. I loved all her little stories that she had, um, you know, anecdotes that you never would have figured out otherwise, unless you were just there in person. Yeah. It's really fun to talk to someone who was living it out. You know, they were there and, you know, it's fun to remember that, the fiction of this show is what we watch, you know, every week, Charles, but then there is the reality of like what goes into making every episode and, uh, the fascinating stories that happen inside of that. And, uh, yeah, once again, thank you so much, Harvest Moon for joining us and Charles, we're going to be taking a bit of a holiday break. So we'll be gone for a couple weeks, but in the meantime, listener, Uh, You can check out our Patreon. We've got some bonus content that we've been brewing since we started our fourth season. Uh, So that's patreon.com slash Northern Overexposure Podcast. And if you check that out, we've got uh, some bonus episodes. We talk about Maze, the um, Rob Morrow, uh, his his first feature film that he directed. Uh, We talk about Ted Lasso and its similarities to Northern Exposure. And then we've got sort of a holiday special with one of our past guests, uh, Brody, who <laughs> who rejoined us. Uh, you'll have to check out the Patreon for more info there. Very special episode. But um, I'm glad we got to to roll out uh, this holiday season with the Thanksgiving episode. It's It was a blast. Yeah, definitely. At least we got one holiday. But <laughs> we're going to be uh, permanently out of sync, at least by one month. <laughs> That's but true. I, I, that, that's if there is a Christmas episode this season. Oh, yeah. I don't know. I don't think they could top Soulmates, but I guess no spoilers. We'll see what they decide to do uh, come, you know, would have been like 
December 1992. That's where we are, right? In the in the chronology of the show right now. Yeah, what is the what is the name of the next episode? The next episode is called Do the Right Thing. It's the ninth episode in season 4, and Charles when we return, uh, that's what we'll be talking about. So, I guess as is typical at the end here, do you have any guesses as to what the episode might be just from hearing that title, Do the Right Thing? Uh, I'm going to guess that a trash can gets thrown through a window. <laughs> nice. Yeah, alluding to, you know, the hit 90s uh film the Spike Lee film. So yeah, I'd be surprised to see what sort of references we get there. Uh, Charles, have a happy holiday. Listener, thank you for listening and uh, we'll see you at the other end. All right, happy holidays, Lee. Northern Overexposure Podcast is edited by me. Our theme music was remixed by Matt Jackson. Thanks to Laser Kitties for the podcast artwork and thanks to Harvest Moon for being our guest. If you'd like to write in, you can reach us at northernoverexposurepodcast at gmail.com, at northernoverpod on Twitter. And if you like the show, please consider becoming a patron at patreon.com slash northernoverexposurepodcast. And of course, happy holidays and thank you for listening.